You know, ever since I started dating someone who is from South Mississippi, I have spent a lot of time in my life on Interstate 10. Julie is from Laurel, Mississippi, and I'm being, my being from Houston meant that when we were dating, we were on I-10 all the time between Texas and Mississippi. Then when we got married and had kids, and we spent a lot of vacation time in the panhandle of Florida, in the beautiful redneck Riviera, as we like to call it. I love the fact that I'm from Texas, but I also have a very, very special place in my heart for Louisiana. My last name is Richard. When I go to Louisiana, it's Richard, but I love Louisiana. I love the people, the food is phenomenal. But you know, when you're driving into Louisiana, you know when you get there. First of all, the, the speed limit drops from 75 in Texas, like God wants it to be, down to 65. And you really don't even need the, the sign. It, you, you know, because when you're in Texas, you're on highways, it's like, but as soon as you hit Louisiana, it's like, it's like riding a jackhammer down the highway. Now, the good news is they're working on the highways in Louisiana. They've been doing it now for about 40 years, so it should be finished anytime. But there, there's a sign that lets you know when you're leaving Texas and entering Louisiana. We, we have a picture of it right here. Louisiana State Line, this is of course over the Sabine River, Calcasieu Parish. That lets you know, man, I'm in, I'm in Louisiana now. Now, I think it's fascinating when you're coming back into the promised land from Louisiana. There's another sign that lets you know you're in Texas. Take a look at this. Now we're coming back. Is that great? There's a 40-foot lone star, flags waving in the breeze. And if you're like Julie and I were, we, we taught our children early in life, when we come back into Texas, we put the horns up and we sing the eyes of Texas. That's what you do every single time. Julie said, Mac, you're brainwashing them. I said, honey, this is called indoctrinating. It's very, very different from brainwashing. And you get into Texas and there's the road sign that says, Beaumont 23, El Paso 857. Deal with that. It's just, it's just, it hits a little bit different. Road signs tell you where you are, tell you where you're going, how far you have to go. But there are signs that, that we all use. If you're a Longhorn fan, you, you do this. If, if you don't love the Lord, you do this. There, you know, Aggies do this over and over and over again. Signs are, are a, a, they're a, a part of life in the Christian faith ever since the very very beginning, the first and second generation Christians that ever were. I'm talking about before 100 AD. Early, early Christians began making the sign of the cross. This is something we associate typically with Roman Catholicism, but it was around long before denominations ever existed. Some people would even make a cross with their thumb and their forefinger, and they'd say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The sign of the cross was a a physical reminder of the spiritual realities behind the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the sign of the cross. Now, Jesus' entire life on earth, his earthly ministry, every bit of it 
Every word that he spoke, every miracle that he performed, every sermon that he preached, every conversation he ever had, everything he did was in fact a sign of the cross. All of his life is pointing us toward the reality of the cross and the resurrection, but it was about the cross that was why Jesus came to earth. Last week, we kicked off this series, Intro to Jesus, and we're examining, we're excavating the Gospel of John. John the Apostle, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he was, he was there with Jesus, he walked with Jesus, he talked with Jesus, he ministered with Jesus, and then he wrote it all down and recorded for us his perspective on the life of Jesus. Now, John's perspective, as you might imagine, is a little different than the other three Gospels that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all telling essentially the same story, but they're speaking from their individual perspectives. They're writing, inspired by the Spirit of God, to tell their story to a specific audience from a specific purpose. And in John chapters 1 and 2, we find John moving from this, this very, very theological and philosophical introduction or prologue in chapter one, the word was God, the word was with God, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, to John picks up the narrative of Jesus' life and begins to share with us some of what Jesus did, but he also continues this theological thread in wanting us to understand not just what Jesus did, but why he did it. Why did he do the things that he did? Why did he say the things that he said? And in John chapter one and two, there are three very specific signs of the cross that we're gonna take up today that, that John gives us to help us gain understanding because we're not studying John so that we can gather more information. Information is helpful, but it's only helpful if it's on the way to transformation. If, if we are on the way to becoming more of who God has created us to be, more of who God is calling us to be, more of what it looks like to follow Jesus, to, to walk in his wake, to, to put our feet in his footsteps and follow his lead. That's, that's what we're after. That's, that's what we're doing throughout this series. And these signs of the cross start with a really interesting part of John's narrative. He starts out, as I said, with this kind of theological prologue, but then he goes into a, a brief description of the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, as we saw last week, John the Apostle and John the Baptist are two different people. John the Apostle, one of Jesus' disciples. John the Baptist was actually Jesus' cousin. And John the Baptist had been commissioned, called by God to prepare the way for the Messiah, Israel's awaited king, the one that had been promised since God entered into covenant relationship with Abram, who became Abraham, all the way through Moses and the Exodus, through David, a man after God's own heart, and then fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And John describes John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist was kind of a wild man in every sense of the word. The Bible says that he, he wore very, very coarse clothing made out of animal skins and hair and, 
and he ate wild honey and locusts, and he, his ministry was out in the wilderness outside of the town of Jerusalem. He was out by the Jordan River east of Jerusalem, but people began to flock to hear John the Baptist's message, his, his proclamation that the time of the Messiah had arrived. He would say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And people listened and they were baptized and their lives were changed. But then there was this moment in the life of John the Baptist where he actually came face to face with the one that he was announcing, the one that he was proclaiming. John chapter one, verse 29, describes this moment. And I want you to read the highlighted words with me. It'll be on the screen here. Read the highlighted words out loud with me if you would. The Bible says that next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, what did he say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John the Baptist would have known that the second he said the Lamb of God to this audience, predominantly Jewish, Israelites, they would have connected the dots between this moment of Messiah and all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 was where God begins to lead Israel out of Egyptian slavery. There have been nine plagues visited upon Pharaoh in Egypt trying to convince him to let God's people go. But in Exodus chapter 12, it is the 10th and final plague. And God says, I will visit a plague on Egypt in judgment of their sin, of their captivity and slaveholding of my people in such a way that will force them to let you go. They're they're not just gonna let you go, they're gonna ask you to leave and they're gonna give you money on the way out the door. That's how powerful this was. We're talking about the death angel, the, the death of the firstborn son in every Egyptian household. But God told Moses that Israel was to prepare for this moment by celebrating a meal in each household. Each household was to take a lamb and sacrifice this lamb to God. They were to roast the meat of the lamb and eat it with bitter herbs and bread that had been prepared with no yeast in it and prepare to travel and to travel fast. But before they would eat the meal, they would take the blood of this lamb and just smear it on the doorpost of the house, the sides and the tops, and that blood on the doorframe was an indication that the plague of God was to pass over that household. This was the initial root cause of the Passover feast that we see Jesus and his disciples celebrate that was carried on for centuries throughout all kinds of trials and tribulations and captivities of the nation of Israel. So the Passover lamb carried enormous weight and significance for John the Baptist's audience. And when he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was pointing them to the person, to the purpose of Jesus. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first sign of the cross that is evidenced right here is the sign of sacrifice. Sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed. He gave his life on the cross for you and for me. And John the Baptist is saying here, 
don't miss what he's about. There are gonna be some amazing things that happen, but make no mistake about it. His purpose, his very reason for being here is sacrifice. Webster says that the word sacrifice means the destruction or surrender of something to benefit something else. The destruction or the surrender of something in order to benefit something else. You could, you could destroy something, you could give something up, if you will, but if it doesn't benefit something else, that's not a, a sacrifice. You know, let me ask you a question. We're, we're a few weeks after Christmas. How many of us in the room, let's be honest, we're in church, how many of us have ever re-gifted a Christmas gift that you got from somebody? Go ahead and raise your hand if you've ever re-gifted something without telling the person that you were re-gifting, okay? Now, no judgment in this, but that's not exactly a sacrificial gift because you usually re-gift something that you didn't want anyway, right? I mean, most of us don't take stuff to goodwill that we wear all the time and really think we look great in. That's not a sacrifice. A sacrifice is when you give something up that has real value to you in order to benefit or to bless someone else. That's a sacrifice, and that's what Jesus was doing. The, the word sacrifice introduces to us a really, really profound mission-critical component of the gospel, something that we have to understand. And for just a brief second, we're gonna go to seminary together, okay? So everybody kind of get, get ready to be just really, really impressed with yourself. The word sacrifice introduces us to the fact of Jesus' substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. That just means very simply a surrogate payment. Somebody paid something for you that you couldn't pay for yourself. That's substitutionary atonement. When our daughter Emily was in high school, she got her driver's license and she had had it for about 15 minutes when I got a phone call at home one day. Emily was on the other line. I could tell she was crying, not sobbing, but crying. You ever, you ever hear tears on a phone, in a phone call? Dad, I'm okay. That, that's a terrible way to start a phone call, by the way. Just, just, but I'm glad she told me. I'm okay, but I had a wreck. And I'm going, okay. She goes, the sheriff is here and everything's fine. The sheriff is there. I'm thinking, do I need to get an attorney? She goes, it was a fender bender. I said, great, we can deal with that. She goes, can you come help me? I said, Emily, I'll be, I'm on my way. Well, I found out later that what happened when I was on the way was the sheriff, deputy, who was there kind of navigating and, you know, setting everything right, had said to Emily, man, your parents are gonna be so mad at you. Their insurance is gonna go up because you had this wreck. And Emily started laughing again. And she said, oh, no, they're not. They're not gonna be happy that I had a wreck, but they're not gonna be mad at, they're not gonna be mad that their insurance is going up because I'm gonna pay the increase. I said, Emily, honey, you are so wise. That is exactly what's gonna happen. Now, 
I could have paid the increase in insurance for her, but I would have failed her as a father. I didn't want to fail. So I said, Emily, you need to learn cause and effect, honey. You need to learn when you pull out in front of oncoming traffic and have an accident, there are effects that occur. Later on, she said, Dad, I was thinking about this. She was crying again. This was hours later. We were at home. She goes, I know I'm responsible, but I don't think it was my fault. I said, unpack that for me. She said, okay. I had established my lane and that car should have stopped. And for a split second, I thought, you know what, that's great. And I thought, Emily, whoa, 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 whoa. Establishing your lane is not a thing. You pulled out in front of oncoming traffic. That's your fault. I understand I'm responsible, but I don't think it, I said, Emily, I love you too much to lie to you. I'm not mad, I'm not upset. You're gonna figure out how to pay the insurance increase. It's your fault. If I had stepped in there, I would have delayed her development as a growing adult. I didn't wanna do that. I wanted her to develop a sense of responsibility, a sense of right and wrong, a sense of ownership and responsibility. Jesus' sacrifice paid a price for my sin that I couldn't pay. Jesus' sacrifice paid the penalty for your sin that you can't pay. This sacrifice is so overwhelming. This, this substitutionary atonement. Atonement is not a word that we use a lot. Atonement just means payment to make amends. Payment to make amends. Emily had to atone for the mistakes she made in her car. I can't atone for my sin by myself. The only way to atone for sin is to live perfectly. Blew that, that ship has sailed. Atonement makes amends. It, it covers the wrong that has been done. That's atonement. Now, some might say, Pastor, I understand Jesus died on the cross. Historically, you, you can't argue whether or not that happened. We can discuss the significance of it, we can discuss the merits of it, but you can't intelligently, historically argue the crucifixion of Jesus. But why, why all this bloodshed? Why, why the, the, the it, it's, this, the sacrificial lamb in Exodus 12, the, the perfect lamb who takes away the sin of the world, why, why all this brutality? Why, why can't we all just sing kumbaya, really mean it, and get along? Whenever you think of atonement, think of God's justice. Atonement equals Justice, and we want a God of justice, believe me. Justice means that God will make right every wrong. You know, the book of Psalms, David voices this, this 
cry this prayer over and over again. I have seen the wicked prosper. Lord, it feels like you have forgotten me. Have you ever seen the wicked prosper? Have you ever, have you ever worked with somebody who's just not a, not a nice person or, or maybe just, just a flat out crook? Have you ever seen somebody in the marketplace who's a crook and they make squillions? There's a part of me, I have problems with that. I wanna, I wanna stand up and go, he's a crook and a bad guy. Probably kicks his dog. That's what I wanna do. God says, Mac, don't worry about it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I will make it all right. Don't worry. I'll take care of every wrong that has ever been suffered in this world because of sin. I will set it right. I will hold everybody to account. And Jesus' sacrifice means that you don't have anything to fear. Jesus' sacrifice means that you have nothing to worry about if you have trusted it for the forgiveness and the remission of your sin. That's what the sacrifice means. It's sacrifice because it satisfies the justice of God. God cannot just wink at sin and go, oh, I didn't really mean all, come on in. He, he can't do that. His holiness, his righteousness means there has to be an accounting, and that's what Christ took on himself on the cross when he became my sin, when he became your sin. It is a staggering sacrifice. Sacrifice. John goes on in the last verses of chapter one, and he begins to describe Jesus as he's meeting and calling his first disciples. And then he opens John chapter two with Jesus' first miracle. His first miracle. We're, we're talking here about the water into wine episode. Jesus had been invited to a wedding. He, he attended with his mother and some siblings and, and some of his disciples. And they get there and there's a big feast and a celebration. And in this day and age, a wedding celebration would last for days. It, it would just go on and on and on and on. And at one point, the Bible doesn't say when it was, but at one point, the host of the wedding, which in those days was the groom, the bridegroom was the one who hosted the wedding. They ran out of wine. Now, you and I hear that and we think, wow, that's, man, that's kind of embarrassing. But hospitality is such an ingrained value in this culture, even to this day, that in Jesus' day, if you ran out of wine or food for the festivities, then you could be fined for running out of this stuff. It, it was a big Big deal. It was a travesty for the host. And Jesus' mother, Mary, calls him over and she goes, Psst. they ran out of wine. And Jesus very respectfully says, woman, this was a, a, a noun of address that was respectful. It would be like, dear woman, dear, dear madam, if you will. It's not my time yet. This is not our problem. Not our wedding, not our problem. And what's fascinating to me is that Mary completely ignored him. <laughs> As only a mom could do. And she looked at the servants and she said, just do whatever he tells you to do. And then fascinatingly, Jesus did it. 
They didn't have an argument. They didn't have a discussion. Mary just goes, okay, do what he tells you to do. Which, by the way, is a good word for all of us. Just do what he tells you to do. Because Jesus then instructed the servants to gather the, the water jugs that would have been about 20 or 30 gallons apiece. There were about six of them, the Bible says. And he says, fill these with water. And then go and get the mater d, the, the MC of the party, and bring him to test it. And when they did and he tested what had been put in as water came out as wine. And it wasn't just like the dregs. It was the good stuff. Here's how the Bible describes it. And again, I want you to read the highlighted words with me because it's an important phrase. The maitre d' said, a host always serves the best wine. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you, host, the groom, you have kept the best until now. And he said this, this what? This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This miraculous sign. So he's saying, listen, what we usually do is we bring out the good stuff at the beginning. Give everybody enough of that to where they can't really tell the difference and then we give them the cheap stuff. He goes, but you didn't do that. You, you saved the best for the last. And he's pointing here at a sign of the cross that is grace. Jesus said, I bring the kingdom of heaven like new wine in new wine skins. This is the good stuff. Everything that has come to this point has been for this moment, has been pointing to this moment. The Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the wisdom, the history, it's all been preparatory for the good stuff, the real thing. Even the sacrificial system. If you go back to Israel, the holiest day of the year in Israel is Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. That was a foreshadowing of this new wine, this grace. Jesus said you are no longer living under the law, you are now living under grace. You are to live in this grace, under this grace, out of this grace. And it's really important that we remember this. Grace is not just a, a license to fly. You don't, you don't get to do just whatever you feel like doing. That's all under grace. I'm New Testament Christian. I, I live in grace. Don't tell me I was wrong. No, you can still be wrong under grace. But we, we live in response to grace, this undeserved, unmerited, un earnable favor of God. That's what grace is. That's what Jesus offered on the cross and in the resurrection, the amazing grace of God. You'll never, say never, never, never do enough to earn God's favor or forgiveness. You can't do it, so don't try. When you understand the grace of God, you remember the sacrifice that was paid for your benefit. Man, then, you, then it's like, man, how do, I, how do I live in response to that? How do I communicate my gratitude? How do I communicate that, that I love this Jesus who sacrificed, who gave me grace? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And it's, it's there in this, of his first of his miracles, that new 
wine, the, the good stuff that he brought. But John continues the narrative. And in the next, very next vignette that he shares with us from the life of Christ, there is a moment that appears to be a complete deviation from the grace moment that we've just seen at the wedding in Cana. In this moment, we see Jesus angry. We see Jesus mad. We see Jesus taking action out of his anger. This is how the Bible describes it. John chapter number two, it says, in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Yikes. Anybody else want to go back and talk about grace? Like, like, golly. The third sign of the cross that John the Apostle reveals to us here in Jesus' life is the sign of wrath. Wrath. And, and I use the word wrath very, very deliberately. It's a biblical word. But it's different from anger. Wrath Wrath is directed at something. God's wrath in particular is purposeful. And it may sound strange to our 21st century ears to hear that God who is love, God whose goodness we were just singing about a few minutes ago, this same God has wrath. He, he, gets, he gets angry about some things. And it's, it, it does sound misplaced until you remember why Jesus got mad. He got mad because his father's house, the place of worship, was being prostituted for financial gain. Now, what they were doing in and of itself was not necessarily wrong because this was in time for the Passover, there were people flocking, making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. They would make a sacrifice. That's a good thing. But most of them couldn't afford to bring their sacrifices with them. They couldn't travel with livestock. They didn't have trailers behind their dually pickups. So they would buy animals for sacrifice once they got to Jerusalem. But here it had become more about the commerce than the worship. Here, they were exchanging foreign money for money that could be used in the temple. In the temple itself, there were animals desecrating the temple. If you've got a bunch of animals standing around, let's be honest, you're gonna have some desecration going on. Defecation, desecration, it's, that's what it's called. And Jesus said, no, not here. This, this is different. What happens here? is different. You see, God gets mad at sin. God hates sin because he loves us. If you're a, you, you understand, it's, it's, like a, it's like a parent who has a child lie to them. 
Remember when your kids lied? How many parents remember the first time your children lied to you, right? And as a parent, you're like, oh, I don't think so. First of all, I'm, at least right now, I am so much smarter than you. I know you're lying. Second of all, I've been telling that lie to my parents since before you were born. I know what you're doing. You're playing out of the playbook I wrote. But then you think as a parent, this is a bad idea for him. This is a bad idea for her. Their life is not going to go well if they choose dishonesty. I want God's best for you, so I'm gonna teach you lying is a bad idea. It complicates everything. Don't lie. Because number one, you're gonna really irritate me and I buy you food. And number two, your life doesn't work well when you lie. I hate it when you lie. I hate it for you. I hate it for what it does to our relationship. That's how God looks at sin in your life and my life. He says, I hate it for you, and I hate it for our relationship. See, God's holy and perfect. He cannot connect with sin. He can't do it. And he's not gonna relax his standards just to let us feel better about ourselves. Jesus' sacrifice was not there so that we could have good self-esteem and feel good about ourselves. It communicates how valuable we are. It communicates that he loves us unconditionally, perfectly, as is, and he loves us too much to leave us there. You can imagine that Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple upset the status quo. The religious leaders confronted him, verses 18 through 21. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. I want you to notice how regularly Jesus absolutely confounds the people who confront him. I mean, just, just completely turns them into knots by speaking truth. Jesus said, all right, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? What they exclaimed? It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. Jesus knew his purpose on the cross was to receive the wrath for my sin and your sin, to take that on himself, to pay the penalty, to atone, to make amends for our sin. And he knew that in that, God's justice would be satisfied. God wasn't letting it go or acting like it didn't matter. He was visiting all of it on his own son, the perfect lamb of God. But he knew, he knew that on the third day he would rise again. He said, this temple, the, the one that you come to now for direct access to the Father, will rise in three days. Don't, I, I got this. I got this. The signs of the cross. John 2, 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this 
and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. When they saw him, the scars in his hands, his feet, and his side, they went back to this moment. Y'all remember? Y'all remember back there in John chapter two? When he, when he said he would, he would raise the temple on the third day? This is that. This is what that is. The signs of the cross. Sacrifice. Grace. Wrath. All taken together, taken in context. I feel like you would agree, though, that these signs of the cross require a response. Surely you can't sit there with your arms crossed spiritually, relationally, and think, some kind of sacrifice. Wow. That's cool information, thanks. Grace, wow. God gives it freely. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. It's universally available. It's not restricted to this group or that group, that color skin, that income group. It's available to anyone. And the wrath of God is real. Wrath on my sin, your sin. It, it requires a response from us. I think when you step back and you look at the sacrifice of Jesus, that's a call to serve. That's a call to say, because of what Jesus did for me, his sacrifice for me, I will serve in my household, I will serve in my neighborhood, I will serve in my church, I will serve at work, I will serve and represent the sacrifice Jesus made for me. When I think about his grace, what I know he's forgiven me for. That's a call to forgive others, to forgive. Have you ever like decided to withhold forgiveness and then you know you, know you should forgive, it's the right thing to do and it's also right for you, but you just don't want to. Sometimes it's just good to stay mad. Has anybody ever wanted to stay mad? Thank you for your honesty. The rest of you, we forgive you for lying. <laughs> We've all been there. Jesus' model prayer, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Give me the grace to forgive as you forgave me. That doesn't mean that you weren't wronged. It doesn't mean that you have to necessarily go back into that same relationship, unless you're married, then you gotta figure it out. But grace calls us to forgive. And the wrath of God, the wrath of God, I think, is a call to repent, to repent. That was John the Baptist's message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. To repent is a change in direction. I'm going this way, going away from God, but now I'm gonna go in this direction. It's a military term. It's an about face. When I think about how deeply and profoundly God loves me, why would I continue sinning against this God who 
sacrificed everything for me, who's given me the gift of grace, this God whose wrath hates anything that is detrimental to me and interrupts my relationship with him. That wrath caused me to repent, to change the way I'm handling things. I shared this with our men's breakfast on Friday this week. I noticed something, or God showed me something that I wasn't proud of in my own life. I, my personality is I'm very direct. I, I don't, I'm just kind of, today's Sunday, deal with it. That's kind of how I roll. And I've noticed that sometimes Julie will ask me a question and I'll respond very directly but very lovingly in my heart, but for some reason she doesn't receive it lovingly. She kind of looks at me like, sorry. Like what, we're good. And she's like, yeah, no we're not. And I had to, I had to tell her, I said, you know, I realized sometimes I, I speak too directly. I don't mean anything harsh by it, but I understand that it comes across as harsh. And first of all, I'm sorry, and I was, I was, I was, I was wrong. And I'm working on it. She stopped and she looked at me and she goes, where's my husband and what have you done with it? No, she goes, really appreciate that. that that's, a, that's a little thing. It's not, not a good thing, but it's, it's not huge. I didn't burn the house down or anything. But it's repentance. It's changing something that takes you away from who God has created and called you to be. It's not easy. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what we're called to. I wonder this morning if maybe, maybe God has you here for a moment like the disciples experienced after the resurrection and when they remembered what he had said and they believed him. When they saw, when they saw him turn the water into wine and they believed him. Maybe for you this weekend, it's time for you to believe him and to follow him. To take that step of faith to personally and definitively choose to receive the grace of God in your life in a relationship with Christ. I wanna ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. If this is that moment for you, then I wanna invite you to pray just right where you're sitting a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning. And just pray silently and say, silently from your heart to God's, just Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you, holding nothing back. In order to receive your grace and your forgiveness. And Jesus, in this moment, I commit to following you, to trusting you for the forgiveness of my sin and for the living out of your grace. Lord, I pray this prayer in 
your name. If you would just remain with your heads bowed for a moment. If that was your prayer, then as a church family, we would love to help with the moments that follow with this brand new relationship, this journey with God. When we dismiss in just a minute, out in the lobby that's to your right from where you're sitting right now, there's an area there, the welcome area. And if you'll just go by there, we would love to just give you a new believer's kit, a packet that has got a Bible, it's got a reading plan as you begin this relationship with God. You begin walking this journey with him day in and day out. Second thing is, as our heads are bowed for just another moment, if that was your prayer, would you raise your hand? Would you just raise your hand and understand that your hand in the air is a statement physically of the commitment that you just made and know that as a church, we celebrate that with you. We honor that and our Family tradition around here is you go ahead and put your hands down as we're gonna put our hands together and tell you welcome home. Welcome home.